From the heart of the Forest City, focusing on the biggest stories in London, this is the Craig Needles Podcast. Now here's your host, Craig Needles. It's the Craig Needles Podcast here at ClassicRock981.com, LondonNewsToday.ca. You can find us there. You can't find us on Facebook, but that's fine. You can find us in uh, all sorts of places on your favorite podcast app as well. And uh, as housing news continues to be a thing, and I was at uh, uh, AMO this week and I, I did an episode uh, from there, uh, I, I wanted to talk once again with Mike Moff. We chatted with him last week and do it again this week because there's another report from the Play Center over at Smart Prosperity Institute. And this is about building 1.5 million homes in Ontario in the next 10 years. So the question is, whose job is that to make sure it happens? Mike joins on the podcast to talk about that right now. Hey, Mike, thank you for this. Oh, thank you for having me. So the report, and, and you can find it at, uh, at the smartprosperity.ca website, playcenter.smartprosperity.ca. Uh, it's called Working Together to Build 1.5 Million Homes. And I don't think that, uh, that you or anyone else thinks that one particular level of government is responsible for making sure that Ontario can build 1.5 million homes in the next 10 years. But who is responsible? How do we, how do we portion out that particular pie, I guess, is my question. Yeah, and that's it was funny. We uh, had been working on this report for a while. And then this this topic of, you know, exactly whose jurisdiction is housing in uh, got uh, got uh, much, much bigger a few weeks ago. So, you know, we, we were we were the beneficiaries of good timing here. So what we look at the report is basically just break it down into, okay, this is what the federal government's responsible for. This is what the province does. This is what municipalities do. But we think we need to go further than that, that uh, there is a responsibility of builders and developers as they're the ones who, who actually build the homes. Uh, higher education uh, plays a big, big role, both on the supply of workers needed to you know, create these communities, um, but also on the demand side, as we see enrollments increase and the need for, for student housing increase, which I know is a big topic at AMO. Organized labor plays a role, the financial sector plays a role, and so on. So it, we really do need to work together to build 1.5 million homes. And you know what we're trying to get across is the need for, for collaboration and coordination rather than the sort of finger pointing that we've seen over the last few months. Yeah, you, you know, mentioning AMO, uh, I was there a little bit. It was, it was here in London. It was a walk from the studio. So I think I sat in on three different presentations. They're all sort of somewhat housing related and you were mentioned at each and every single one of them at least once. So you were uh, you were uh, a somewhat popular figure at AMO despite the fact that you were uh, on the other side of the country. Yeah, it was right. It was a real sort of housing uh, week for us. So we had to divide and conquer because there was there was AMO in London uh, and uh, obviously housing was a big topic there. Um, I was uh, in PEI. I was uh, presenting to, to federal cabinet at the cabinet retreats and, you know, just opened up the paper. They, you know, the Globe and others have talked about that housing was the biggest focus of that. And there was a third meeting uh, called the Council of uh, State Governments uh, that was held in Toronto. And it's basically a bunch of U.S. states along with uh, five Canadian provinces all, all meeting. So we had to do a divide and conquer. So I went out east. Uh, our housing team is only two people. It's myself and someone your listeners would know very well, former Ward 4 Councillor Jesse Helmer. 
So Jesse went to the, uh, the the meeting in Toronto, and then unfortunately, neither one of us were, were able to make AMO. So the, that kind of divide and conquer thing had to happen because so much is going on about uh, housing right now. Yeah, we can't be uh, we can't be everywhere at once. So you, you mentioned uh, in the report there are there are six uh, challenges that are identified in here, and I want to go through each of them with you as far as what we can do about them. The first one is lack of coordinations between governments and the private sector and the public sector. Just a matter of the left hand not always know, knowing what the right hand's doing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we see this, uh, one of the, the ways we really see this, if we, if we go back to London's uh, official plans, like the London plan, you know, past iterations, yep. um, the, pop, the, the, the sort of the amount of population growth that these things had called for was wildly under underestimated. And that was largely due to factors outside of municipal control. It was due to, uh, you know, changes in immigration targets, uh, you know, the increase in the number of families uh, moving in from the GTA. And one of the biggest ones uh, being enrollment decisions made by, by Fanshawe and Western. So that lack of coordination meant that, you know, the demand side of housing was increasing substantially. But the supply side couldn't adjust as much, partly because municipalities weren't planning for it, but also partly because builders and developers didn't didn't see it coming, right? Because they didn't know that these changes were coming down the pipe. You know, and I've talked to developers, um, you know, not so much in the London area, but but other cities, but basically said, like, look, if if we knew that the international student population was was going to increase as, as much as it did we would have made more investments because there was money on the table there. So it's this lack of coordination that's caused this real supply and demand imbalance. So it's the kind of biggest thing that we're calling for is like, let's just get everybody in, in a room, get all of these uh, actors who uh, uh, affect both the supply of housing, the demand for housing, and let's, let's get some coordination in this space. Yeah, it, it has to happen. And it, it just is to the detriment, of course, of everyone that it, it's not happening. And, and those population projections, it, it became pretty clear pretty quickly that they were off and needed to be readjusted. It just didn't happen. And that's not necessarily, like you said, just on municipalities. But, uh, you know, there are some provinces that have messed up their population projections, too, including Ontario. I think the feds uh, have had some uh, population projections that have uh, that have aged poorly, too. So that's that's on everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just sort of a lack of, of coordination. So, like, for instance, one of the things that the federal government does um, that drives me a little up the wall is that they they'll, they will announce new population or new um, immigration targets for the upcoming year. And they'll, they'll announce them on November 1. So they'll say, OK, you know, uh, you know, 60 days from now, this is what the, what our new immigration target is going to be. But that doesn't give municipalities any time to plan. It doesn't give builders and developers any time to to plan uh, if all of a sudden they go, oh, wow, okay, we're going to have an extra 25,000 people. So, you know, it's that kind of lack of coordination. And it, that's just a planning issue. There's nothing preventing the federal government from making, uh, it, you know, five-year or 10-year targets. Yes, obviously, we have elections and things change. So there's always going to be a bit of political risk. But it's just that lack of just kind, you know, other orders of government kind of making these decisions without with very little consultation or warning that then the city government has to go, OK, well, what do we do with this now? We just we just don't have time to react. 
Yeah, uh, and I, I certainly understand uh, that. So it's a matter of figuring it out. And that's what we're talking about here in this report. Uh, you also mentioned shortages of materials, financing and skilled labor. And, and the financing aspect is something I heard quite a bit at uh, at AMO, which is, uh, you know, where's where's the capital for this going to come from? Where's the cash going to be? And uh, you, you think there should be cash there. There's money to be made. People want a place to live. People need a place to live. But it's just a matter of figuring it all out, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we we go through these six bottlenecks, and that's a, a bottleneck we call ability. You know, just the ability to to build all all, all of these things. You know, lack of a skilled labor obviously is an issue. Uh, that's directly in provincial uh, jurisdiction, and uh, we know that uh, Minister McNaughton has been working quite a bit on that. So, it's not something that the province is is unaware of. But uh, that capital piece is really important. So, let's think about this for a sec. So, if we need to build one point five million homes and we talk about homes that's all types that's you know everything from single detached to apartment units to social housing and so on even if each of those houses cost to to build and have the land even if each of those costs let's say half a million dollars which is actually far lower than the average all of that just to build the homes we need 750 billion you know that's just the 1.5 million times so we need to somehow attract 750 billion dollars in capital just to build the homes and that doesn't include anything to build all the infrastructure around it the schools the parks everything else so you're getting into a trillion dollars <laughs> so you know there we need to figure out how we can draw in uh more more private capital and spend uh government's money the most effective way possible because you know, we're, we're talking with you know over a trillion dollars with with a t in a very short period of time yeah that's uh that's a lot of cash, <laughs> and I understand that's a lot of cash, so it's a matter of uh, figuring that out. And high costs, one of your other uh, uh, challenges here, high costs, including taxes and fees, are, are part of that too. So if we're having trouble finding the money and certain elements of the project become more expensive than perhaps they have to, well, that makes finding the money even more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So so that one we call viability, mm-hmm. that there are a lot of great projects out there um, that aren't financially viable anymore, uh, particularly at higher interest rates. And I'm thinking more sort of apartment type projects. There are things that governments can do about that. Uh, so uh, our, our National Housing Accord, our, our other report, you know, looks at the sort of uh, things that the federal government uh, can do, uh, which is, uh, you know, reducing uh, taxes, eliminating the HST on purpose-built rental, uh, tax uh, credits for incentives to build uh, affordable purpose-built rentals. Uh, They can offer fixed-rate financing. But there's other things the other levels of government can do too. And one of the biggest ones is is obviously development charges. It's important to note that the, the municipal development charges uh, set out are, are based on provincial regulation, right? So, so the municipalities only have so much room to, to move, maneuver, though. They're, they are provincial rules. So we need to figure out a way to, uh, you know, make sure that development charges and, and property taxes and things like that aren't, and, uh, aren't deterring development, while at the same time recognizing that those development charges also pay for all the infrastructure we need. And if we start dialing those back, that money's got to come from somewhere. So I think these things are, are really important. Land land val, uh, land uh, transfer tax at the provincial level 
also uh, can deter construction. So it's a, it's a tightrope where you don't want these taxes so high that they deter development, but you also don't want to set them too low and then not know where, where the money's coming from for all that infrastructure. Is there anything, you know, you mentioned that Catch-22 municipalities are in here, but is there anything they can do about this to try to sort of uh, ride the line a little bit better, perhaps to a spot that makes more sense for everybody to get more housing built, just as far as, you know, and, and we hear politicians use this as kind of a catchphrase all the time. And I know that's not as simple as saying, we're going to get rid of the red tape, but is there something along those lines that may be a not too difficult to fix that might make some of these projects cheaper to undertake? Yeah, so there's a couple things. Uh, so if we go to the uh, Ontario li- Liberal uh, leadership race, which I know you've been covering, uh, one of the candidates, uh, Yasser Nakvi, has called on a temporary halting of development charges w- with uh, the provincial government making up uh, making up that difference uh, from uh, from their budget. And what that would do is that would uh, incentivize developers and both, you know, and we're not talking about just for profits. This affects not for profits as well um, to to build and build quickly if this is this is time limited. So there are things that the province can do. The city's a little bit more limited, but but obviously it can um, it can do things like uh, provide waivers for you know certain types of developments. It could tweak on the property tax side. Um, it could tweak that sort of ratio between uh, property taxes for single detached versus um, property taxes for multi-unit residential. Uh, I know that uh, <laughs> this is going to be an episode where we just talk about Jesse Helmer a lot, but I know uh, I know Helmer uh, Jesse. <laughs> he'll be had, he'll uh, be fine with it. Yeah, he'll be he'll he'll, he'll be fine with that. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> be at a dollar every time I talk about him. But uh, uh, it, you know, he uh, he and other counselors on the last council really tried to to change that balance to make uh, multi unit unit residential a, a little bit more viable. So there are things that the city can do there, and and frankly, that they have been doing over the last few years. Yeah, I think that's been uh, that that's been the case too, and I and I and I, and I want them to continue to do those things. Uh, and then you you look at some of the other points here. You mentioned uh, uh, slow to no productivity growth in home building. Perhaps you know points two and three about materials costs and skilled labor shortages and taxes and fees and things along those lines. Perhaps two and three are causing problem four. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely, or or at least necessitates right. uh, some some increases in productivity because. Uh, because if we look at kind of across Canada, you know, depending on the target, we either need to double home building or triple home building. That's going to be really hard to do if we just do what we're doing now, but kind of two exit, right? You start to run into these constraints really quickly, you know, whether it be the financial side or the skilled labor side in, in particular. You know, demographics are already working against us with so many skilled tradespeople, you know, either retired or just about to retire. So just replacing them is hard, hard enough. So we need to figure out how to be more productive as, as a sector. Um, other, otherwise, it's just, we're not going to be able to build those communities. And there's a lot of things that you can do there. So on the higher ed side, you know, that's helping um, you know, develop these new technologies and, and have, them on the, have, have them happen on the ground. But as well, um, we have a lot of types of building, like some modular housing, um, single staircase apartments and things like that, that aren't legal under the building code. Those and, and that's a provincial, mostly a provincial issue. The province could tweak that. The province could tweak the building code 
um, to allow for you know some of these new types of buildings, while at the same time making sure that they protect uh, worker safety and the environment and, and and so on. So there's a thing that that we can do. It's mostly in provincial jurisdiction, uh, but that could really help get some some buildings built. Yeah, that uh, I, I think that makes a lot of sense too. It, it just it feels like it's an all hand deck, all hands on deck type of thing. And I think that you've you've used this terminology in places before, a wartime effort in order to to, to make this happen. Yeah, absolutely, uh, because it does require so much coordination. And I think the wartime effort analogy is important because. In a wartime like effort that different level orders of government and different political parties will tend to put their differences aside, at least temporarily, uh, on a, a common goal. And we saw some of this during the pandemic uh, as well. And I think that's what needs to happen here, that, again, there's just too much finger pointing going on um, that we need these orders of government to, to work together. But I'm also hopeful at the provincial level, at the federal level. That they reckon that the different parties, both the government and the opposition, recognize the crisis this is in. You know, look to some of the solutions that that both of our reports are providing and, and others are providing as well, and work together to to fast track these through the legislature or through parliament to get that change happening. So, so I do think that there is value in thinking about this as a wartime like effort because of that la- that. Uh, that, that coordination and common purpose that, that you see during those times. Yeah. And I, we need it. Like there's too many people that don't have a place to live. And if we don't, have that type of effort. This problem's only going to get worse. And I say this as a homeowner. I understand that uh, scarcity of housing is probably a good thing for me because I own my home, but I don't want to be someone who's kicking the ladder out from people who are behind me. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I'm really glad you said that because I, I, I think there's oftentimes um, a, a a feeling that this is zero sum, that that uh, if we're helping uh, helping the homeless or helping renters or helping people who want to be first time home buyers, that's going to affect negatively affect homeowners like like you and me. And I, I think there's a couple things wrong with that. that, that first of all, that it assumes a level of selfishness on the, the part of homeowners that I don't think is always there. That, you know, yes, it's, there's nothing sort of immediate in for me, but, you know, I, I want to have a functional country and a functional province. So, you know, yeah, if my property value goes down a little because of it, that, that's a price we're paying. But secondly, we also have to recognize that existing homeowners are getting hit by this hard too. I can't tell you how many homeowners are, there are right now that have an 18 year old who can't, who's going into college or university, can't find a place to live or can't find an affordable place to live. I can't tell you how many uh, homeowners there are that have a 28 year old who's living on the couch, who, who just can't move out. I can't tell you how many homeowners that have a 38 year old who did find somewhere to live, but it was like two hours away. They had to drive until they qualify. And now grandma and grandpa don't get to see the grandkids anymore, except over FaceTime. So this crisis is affecting home existing homeowners in a big way, too. So I think politicians can make the mistake of thinking that this is a zero sum issue. And it's really not existing homeowners are, are getting significantly negatively impacted by the situation as well. 
it's going to matter. There's going to be different types of housing that are available. If we build a whole bunch of apartment buildings, there's still going to be value in owning a home with a backyard and a single, you know, a single unit home, right? It's, it may not be exactly the same, but there, there's going to be a certain level of desire to have that. And therefore, the value of your home is not going to completely crater if there's a few apartment buildings down the street from you. Yeah, and and this is where the supply and de- di- uh, supply and demand dynamics get get really interesting. So if we build more apartments, but also more starter homes uh, for for individuals, then on the one hand, that is competition for you know the sort of suburban four bedroom home. So you think, okay, well that competition should lower prices, and it, and it very well might in the short run. But what it does in the long run is, first of all, it allows those renters to save more money which allows them to put bigger down payments. And in the case of the starter home, it allows them to build equity and then move up the property ladder. So that actually creates conditions where that might cause that four uh, that four bedroom suburban existing suburban home from the 1980s to actually go up in value because you've got younger people who are able to save more money and build more equity. So it's you know the the supply this is another area where it's more complex than the stories that we hear and that you know helping young renters, helping young time first home buyers doesn't necessarily have to come at the expense of the equity of existing older homeowners. Yeah. Now, the one thing is the federal government has uh, offered up some ideas for helping first-time homebuyers that I don't think will help this situation at all. And I've seen the, even the federal NDP has offered up some ideas of, hey, we're going to like, you know, bankroll. I know I'm paraphrasing here. Bankroll your down payment. Like, no, that doesn't help the situation at all. That just makes the housing even more valuable and makes it even more difficult to put in bids on these homes. There has to be more homes. That's the only way to solve this. Yeah, absolutely. Like we we, we don't have a shortage of uh, of um, you know uh, deposits and money and, and and things like that to buy up existing homes. What we have is a shortage of homes, right? And that's where the focus has to be. It has to be on. Uh, figuring out how to build more homes, not just have more money chasing the existing housing stock that that just causes inflation. That doesn't that doesn't fix anything. Uh, the last thing you mentioned, as far as your your key your your six core challenges here, rather, this is something I talked about on the podcast with Councilor Sam Trasso uh, this week, and he represents the area surrounding Western University. That's his ward. Um, a lack of non-market housing from co-op housing, which is which is one thing, to on-campus student rentals. So, you know, dorms, essentially. Now, Western, they're building a couple, which is great, but they need to build a lot more. And so do a lot of other colleges and universities in this province. Yeah, absolutely. And and this touches on a couple of the issues that, that we've talked about uh, already. So, you know, I talk to colleges and universities and I ask them this question, like, like, why aren't you building more student residences when it's when it's badly needed? And I get I get two responses. The first is just a lack of capital. They say, like, you know, we, we, we'd like to. And in fact, you know, the money's there, the demand's there. But we just, you know, in some universities and colleges, they don't have the upfront capital to do that. So and we'll know here that ways. that does not apply to Western is something that we'll does, know not, here. Does, <laughs> does not apply to Western. But it does apply to one others. Of the reasons yes. why that you actually see Western doing something about it on the on the on campus housing side on the way that you might not see, you know, smaller, less well capitalized schools. But you're but you're right. That doesn't necessarily apply to Western, but it does apply to some. There are things that we can do about it. You know, there are provincial and federal financing mechanisms we can create. Or we can take a a book out of the old Harper Economic Action Plan, 
you know, back after the financial crisis, um, the the federal governments had programs where they would put in some money, the province would put in some money, and the institution would put in some money and would build a lot of buildings on campuses. These were mostly like labs and classrooms and things. But if you go to the Ivy building where I teach, that's one of them. There's nothing preventing us from doing that again, uh, having this kind of joint, uh, you know, joint funding model. So that's that's the first thing that I hear. The second thing I hear, and this is tends to be more behind closed doors, is those colleges and universities are actually a little bit concerned that uh, the sort of increasing enrollments that we have might actually be a bit of a bubble that that future government or, or present governments may sort of tamp down on international enrollments which means that if a, if a school built a residence that's going to last 50 years, uh, that might be a problem if enrollment's going to go down in 50 months. So I think there, there's a thing where we have to have some coordination, where um, the schools work mostly with the province, so arguably with the federal government as well, and come up with some you know longer term enrollment plans and and one of the things that the federal government could do is you know through the CMHC or other to offer insurance to these institutions that like if if something weird happens with enrollment um, that they will be insured and they won't have a bunch of half empty buildings on campuses. So there are solutions to this stuff. Like, you know, we hear a lot about the problems and they are real problems, but we just got to get creative. We got to have that wartime like effort and we can solve these, these issues that are preventing these, uh, you know, these residences from being built. It's just a matter of getting the people who are setting policy here in the same room and and coming up with something that works for everybody. And it's not hard to envision, and you just kind of outlined it there, it's not hard to envision something that might work for everybody. I don't think it's going to be a, a super hard negotiation to figure out a set of, of rules and circumstances that can get some of these uh, universities and colleges to build more on-campus housing, provided they get the right guarantees from government and whatever else it is they need. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the big messages that I had uh, for the federal government uh, when I was out in PEI is for them to remember that this is not the first housing supply crisis we've had in this country. That a- after the end of World War II, with all the returning veterans, uh, we had uh, we had a housing shortage, and and we had the CMHC and and others come up with all kinds of plans to create housing for those veterans. Uh, in the 1960s, we had increased immigration. Uh, we had the first wave of baby boomers moving into apartments. And frankly, the first wave of baby boomers going to places like Western and Fanshawe. And if you look, a, a lot of those on-campus housing that were, that exist at colleges and universities uh, across Canada were, were built between about 1965 and 1975 when we had that big wave of, of boomers uh, going uh, going into higher ed. And we had programs back then to facilitate this. So I think a big thing that we just need to also do is just look at what worked in the past, you know, dust that off, uh, make the changes needed for the 2023 uh, context and just go ahead and do it. Yeah, I I think it just it, it needs to happen. It's it's not a matter of, you know, should we do this? Yes or no? It's a matter of it needs to happen. So we've got to figure out what it is and and, and figure it out from there. And something that I think 
is a positive sign is I don't think there's anyone who's credible or anyone who's serious anywhere on the political spectrum doesn't acknowledge, hey, this is a problem that we badly need to tackle and we badly need to fix. And all levels of government, same thing. So it's a matter of just getting everyone to figure out how we're fixing it. We don't need to convince anyone that this needs to be fixed. Yeah, absolutely. And and I'd go even a step further than that, that we're starting to get agreement about the scale of, of, of right. the issue that, that I think three or four years ago, you, you would get this talk of like, oh, well, once interest rates go up, this would solve this. Or if we, you know, we just did this one, you know, this one simple trick, uh, uh, whatever that simple trick would be, this whole issue goes away. I don't hear that talk anymore that I, I, I hear uh, like we we did on the housing accord and and in the Ontario paper is sort of recognize that there's a whole bundle of problems all operating at once and they're going to re- require a a suite of of solutions. So, you know, I get frustrated at the pace of change, but I have to admit we are moving in the right direction and the and the and the, and the discourse uh, is is improving and there just does seem to be. Uh, an increased sense of urgency among politicians that I would say didn't even exist six months ago. Well, that's uh, that's good news because uh, the urgency is, is badly needed, like you said, wartime effort. Anything else, Mike, before we wrap up our chat here that you want to make sure folks know about, about, about this report, about working together to build 1.5 million homes in Ontario? Well, I'm 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 hopeful that these ideas uh, get picked up, um, and I, I'm certainly hopeful that the, the provincial government takes leadership uh, on this. They have a they have a housing task force uh, report with 55 recommendations. Uh, the first place to start would just be implementing those, and we can do this without paving over the green belt. I just I feel like I need to get that in somewhere that there are there are solutions to the housing crisis that don't require us to make massive land use changes that affect our green space or cause us to do things like build on on floodplains. So there are solutions here um, and they don't necessitate those big uh, land use changes that have frankly now been sent off to the RCMP. Yeah, I forgot about that part. <laughs> yes, um, th- that that should probably be dealt with too. But uh, that's not necessarily a, a housing thing. There's a, there's a criminal element to that. But we'll there's some uh, other stuff. Going yeah, on there's some there, other yeah. stuff going on. Uh, Mike, as always, thanks for this. Where can people find the report? If they want to go uh, read it for themselves. How can they go get it? So it's at playcenter all one word dot smartprosperity dot ca. There we go. It's uh, Mike Moffat, who's with the uh, the Play Center at Smart Prosperity Institute. He's an economist, and he's uh, talked about housing with us a couple times in the last few weeks, which we very much appreciate. Mike, thank you so much for doing this. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. It's the Craig Needles Podcast, which you can find at ClassicRock981.com, LondonNewsToday.ca, and wherever you get your podcasts. The Craig Needles Podcast is a presentation of the Blackburn Media Podcast Network.